This episode is sponsored by our upcoming Day Unconsciousness online conference taking place on January 30th, 2022. In this series of talks, we'll be exploring the fascinating mysteries of human consciousness with a specific focus on theories that go beyond the materialist paradigm. We'll have lectures from three internationally best-selling authors, including Dr. Ian McGilchrist, who will present on consciousness, purpose and values, Rupert Spira, who will give a talk on non-duality and the nature of consciousness, and Annie Murphy-Paul, whose title will be The Extended Mind. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, and get lifetime access to the recordings and all available materials from the sessions. The event is CPD accredited, and a certificate qualifies you for five hours of CPD. Additionally, all tickets come with a 100% satisfaction guarantee, meaning if you're not satisfied with your learning experience, you'll get a full refund with no questions asked. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash consciousness 2022 and use the discount code POD when registering. That's all one word, POD. You can also find the link and the discount code in the show notes for this episode. Pleasure to be here again. It's been a couple of years. Let's start with this. Two, two out of the three mysteries about our place in the universe have already been solved. I mean, the first is literally about our place in the universe. We're not at its center. Copernicus showed us hundreds of years ago that we are you know, rotating around the sun, and now we know that we're somewhere, a speck in the abyss somewhere in the western spiral arm of one galaxy among God knows how many. And then Darwin came along, of course, in the 19th century and revealed that we are not so special among all other animals either. We are related to all other living creatures. We are just one twig, one branch of a beautifully rich and elaborate evolutionary tree. And a third mystery, and if you like, the third way in which we still often think of ourselves as special, as unique, as apart from the rest of the universe is consciousness. So we all know what consciousness is. It's what goes away when you fall into a dreamless sleep or have general anesthesia or die. And it's what comes back when you uh, wake up again or are resurrected. Um, and it's the presence of any kind of subjective experience. You're having, we're all conscious now, we're all having a conscious experience. Uh, it's kind of the one thing that cannot really be an illusion, is the fact that we are conscious now, right here and right now. But how this happens, how the uh, material stuff, the warm and wet neurons and glia and all the things that are inside your skull, how that generates this inner universe of conscious experience is still thought of as one of these you know, completely intractable mysteries. But it happens. Somehow it happens. Somehow, within each of our brains, this combined activity of many billions of neurons, the last count, one has about 80 billion neurons, and a thousand times more connections between the neurons. Somehow, this incredibly comp complex biological machine is giving rise to a conscious experience. How does this happen? Even the possibility of an explanation that can get you from mechanism to conscious experience has been considered something, you know, perhaps, beyond the reach or remit of science. And this is a very 
old worry about the relationship between mind and matter or consciousness and matter. It's the, it's the difference between the, the inner world and the outer world, between the subjective and the objective, between the mind and the brain. Uh, probably the most influential way of putting this confusion can be traced back to René Descartes, who caused a lot of mischief in the philosophy of mind by dividing the world into two types of things. There's res cogitans, the stuff of mind and matter, and, sorry, the stuff of mind, the stuff of conscious experience, and there's res extensa, the stuff uh, of matter, things that tables are made of, chairs are made of, and brains and bodies are also made of. And once you've split the world and the universe in two like this, into two fundamentally different modes of existence, it's very, very difficult to know how to put them back together again. And so consciousness, even though it really is rather the central phenomenon of mental life, and at the birth of psychology and at the birth of neuroscience, consciousness was taken as the central uh, topic of study. Despite that, for most of the 20th century, uh, research into consciousness was considered rather disreputable. And when I started as an undergrad in the 90s, it was basically I was told not to do it. In fact, I was told not to do it multiple times because it's not something that you can study scientifically, even though we know it depends on the brain in, in clear uh, and measurable ways. Perhaps the most pessimistic statement about studying consciousness was in the International Dictionary of Psychology. This is from 1989, so it's quite a while ago now, but still within living memory. Uh, Stuart Sutherland, who compiled this dictionary, he was actually the founding professor of psychology at Sussex University, where I work. And the entry to consciousness was this. Consciousness is a fascinating but elusive phenomenon. It is impossible to specify what it is, what it does, or why it evolved. Nothing worth reading has been written on it. <laughs> that's in the dictionary of psychology. That's pretty damning, right? That's, um, and that's where we were about 30 years ago. Of course, many sensible things worth reading have been written on consciousness before then and after then. And a good place to start is with, uh, with the philosopher David Chalmers, who you can think of for the purposes of today as a sort of modern incarnation of René Descartes, because he poses this problem of the difference between the separation of mind and matter of res cogitans and res extensa in, in a way that really focuses on consciousness rather than mind or mental processes in general. He's known for coining the term the hard problem. And here's how he describes what the hard problem is. I'll just read out the bit in, that I've highlighted where he says, it is widely agreed that experience arises from a physical basis, but we have no good explanation of why and how it so arises. Why should physical processing give rise to a rich inner life at all? It seems objectively unreasonable that it should, and yet, it does. This is the hard problem, as, as Chalmers put it, back in 1995. I want to expand a little bit on what he means by that by contrasting it with a couple of other ways to, to see the problem. And we're not going to solve the hard problem today. We're going to creep up on it and see if it dissolves rather than gets solved. So the usual way to introduce the hard problem is to contrast it with what's been called the easy problems of consciousness. And the easy problems of consciousness are the problems of the rest of neuroscience and psychology. These are the problems of how the brain works. How does this, this machine inside my skull 
take in sensory information, process it in various ways to allow my body to move, to guide my behavior, to lead me to say various things. Uh, how does perception work? How does action work? How does the brain as a mechanism work? Of course, these are not easy problems at all. These are extremely hard problems, which is why we have neuroscientists to try to solve them at least a little bit. But the intuition is, or the intuition that Chalmers tries to drive at, is that even if we get to the end of this journey and we solve the easy problems so that we have a satisfying explanation of how brains as machines work, we would not have touched the hard problem at all. There would still be this mystery of why there should be anything it is like to be an organism with a brain. Why, in other words, why isn't it all just going on in the dark? Uh, that's the, the sort of intuition. Of course, I think it's a really dangerous intuition because we have no idea what it would be like to have solved the easy problems and what things would still seem mysterious to us uh, or not. Um, I'll give you an example of that in a second. So instead of just contrasting these problems, I propose to, I mean, the way I think about consciousness, the way I try to research it in the lab and with colleagues is what I call the real problem of consciousness. And this says that yes, conscious experiences exist, they're not illusory, some people will even now try and tell you that they're, you know, you're mistaken if you think you're conscious. Uh, conscious experiences exist and they depend in, in ways that we can e examine on the brain. And the challenge is to explain the properties of conscious experiences in terms of things going on inside brains and bodies. Questions like, why does a visual experience appear to us the way it does? And why is that different from an emotion? What does it mean to be a self? Why is the experience of being a self different from the experience of listening to music, for instance? Things like that. And the idea is that if you can approach this big mystery, instead of, instead of thinking it was one big mystery and trying to solve it with some special source that turns, uh, that sort of endows mechanisms with consciousness, you can just explain the properties that we tend to ascribe, that we tend to associate with consciousness in terms of things in brains and bodies, and then see how much mystery remains. This isn't a new approach, of course. In fact, a lot of people do this all the time, but it's sort of a nice way to, to formalize and frame it. It's not the easy problem, because we are talking about conscious experiences. We're not just talking about what brains do as, as, lump, as biological machines. And it's not the hard problem either, because we're not trying to find this single special source that magics consciousness out of mere mechanism. Now, there is a kind of precedent for this. It's not a precise analogy, but I think it's informative nonetheless. And this is how, in the history of science, we've come to understand the basis of life. Now, it wasn't that long ago that leading biochemists and biologists of the day considered the problem of life to be as intractable as we, some of us today, think of the problem of consciousness. Which is to say, it was worried that however complicated an explanation you could come up with about the mechanisms of living systems, there would still be something missing. You'd still need a special source, a spark of life, an élan vital, that would make the difference between the living and the non-living. Um, that no explanation in terms of mechanisms would be sufficient. And, of course, now we don't really think like that anymore. This is the philosophy of vitalism, that mechanisms would be insufficient for life. Now, of course, vitalism has rather faded, and we don't understand everything about living systems, of course not. But this sense that life is, in principle, inexplicable in terms of mechanism has definitely gone away. And one of the strategies that led it to go away was this idea that life is not just one thing. 
if you take, if you assume life to be this one big scary mystery, then you'll be tempted to look for one large humdinger of a, of a solution, some very dramatic uh, explanation. And that's not really the case for life. Now we think about life, it's comprised many different features that not all living systems share. I mean, most things share. We have metabolism, we have reproduction, we have homeostasis of the body. Uh, and these are all properties of living systems, and they can all individually be explained by things happening inside organisms. But, and collectively, they explain the difference between things that are alive and things that are not. And then, of course, you've got gray areas like viruses and, and, and so on, and oil droplets and whatnot. Um, so perhaps the same strategy can work for consciousness. That's the sort of perspective I'm going to explore today. That consciousness is not just one thing. And if we stop treating it as one big scary mystery in, in search of one large uh, dramatic solution, then we might make more progress than we think. And so how does the study of consciousness work? Well, for the last 20, 30 years now, pretty much ever since Stuart Sutherland wrote his rather scathing remarks in the Dictionary of Psychology, the, the standard method has been to look for the so-called neural correlates of consciousness. This is a figure I've stolen from Christoph Koch, who, is one of, who still is one of the leading researchers in consciousness science. He's based in Seattle now. And he pioneered this approach called what we now call the NCC. This is the search for the neural correlates of consciousness. Uh, now, you can caric caricature it here. There's a, a chat with a brain. He's looking at the world. In the world, there's a dog. And he is having an experience of the dog. He's seeing a dog. He's having a visual experience of a dog. Now, the idea is there will be something in his brain, the NCC for the, this particular conscious experience, there will be something, whether it's a pattern of activity or a particular bunch of neurons, whatever it is, that when that is present, there will be the conscious experience of dog, and when it's absent, there won't be. So it's the idea there's some minimal neuronal mechanism that is jointly sufficient for the presence of any single conscious perception. That's the NCC. And this is a really nice idea because it gives you something to do. You, know, you, can, you can basically try to identify these NCCs by um, many methods. You, classic methods are things like you, you try to have situations that are as closely matched as possible, apart from, in one case, somebody has an experience of something, in another case, they don't. Classic thing is something like binocular rivalry, where you have two different images in the different eyes, so the sensory input is always the same, but the conscious experience tends to flip back and forth. So then you can look at, well, what's the neural correlate of that flipping or of what's, what dominates conscious experience at one time? So that's the, the sort of been the dominant method, and it's been dominant because you can do something. But it is also limited. And it's limited because correlations, we know, are not explanations. The fact that X correlates with Y neither means that X causes Y, nor does it mean that you understand any, what the relation it means and, and why it obtains. I mean, yeah, there's all these amazing examples of false correlation. I think things like the divorce rate in, in um, Minnesota sort of correlates with the price of cheese in mid-century France. Stuff like very, very statistically significantly, but of course it's entirely meaningless. So correlations are not explanations. Uh, and so the idea, the challenge for neuroscientists interested in consciousness is how do we go from correlation to explanation? It's one thing to say, Yes, your prefrontal cortex lights up when you're conscious of uh, seeing a dog, let's say. It's another thing to explain, well, what does that tell me about why the experience of the dog is the way it is and not some other way? And I think the closer you get to 
explanation, the less mysterious consciousness becomes as a phenomenon in the universe. But you have to do this anyway. I mean, this is just part of what, even if there's some mystery left over at the end, this is the, the business of science. So, with that introduction, let's try and take the same strategy that biologists took with respect to life and apply it to consciousness. And so, one way to do that is to split consciousness into different different objectives. What are, the kind, what are the properties of consciousness that a science of consciousness should try to explain? And one very rough and ready way of doing it is into three different things. And we're going to talk about all of these three today. There's conscious level. Conscious level is the difference between being completely unconscious and being awake and aware as you are now. It covers things. Basically, how conscious are you um, on a scale from not at all to lots? Then there's conscious content. When you are conscious, you're conscious of something. Right now, the sound of my voice, the atmosphere in this room, the feeling of the seat uh, behind you. The content, so what explains the contents of any specific conscious scene? And then part of pretty much every conscious experience, there are some interesting potential exceptions, but pretty much all the time, part of what you're experiencing is the experiencing of being you, of being a self. Within, this, within the world around you. So how do we explain the specific experience of being a person? And I think that, for me anyway, this is like the sort of where I, I find it most interesting because this is, gets to the heart of what really we want to understand. You know, what is it like? What does it mean to be a self, to be an individual? But we'll, we'll end up there. We're going to start uh, with perhaps the most basic question, which is conscious level. Why, what makes the difference between being unconscious and being conscious at all. The first thing to say about this is that conscious level, this putative scale of how conscious you are, is not the same as how awake you are. We can call how awake you are, we can call that level of physiological arousal. Um, so this graph, which you'll find in, plotted in various different ways in many, many different papers, contrasts conscious level with wakefulness. Now, you can see most of the time they do correlate so when you are in a coma or in general anesthesia, you are both not awake and not aware. And then you can go deep sleep, light sleep, drowsiness to conscious wakefulness now where you are both awake and aware. But critically, you can depart from this diagonal in both directions. When you are dreaming, you are having conscious experiences of a different character. You know, there's all sorts of interesting differences between dream experience and non-dream experience. But you are conscious. And by definition, you're not awake. You're asleep. You're dreaming. And on the other side, you have conditions which are more pathological, unfortunately. Conditions like the vegetative state, epileptic, absent seizures. In these conditions, you are awake, but there's nobody at home. You're lacking in conscious experience. This is why conditions such as the vegetative state, uh, which follow really severe brain injury, are so difficult, to die, so difficult to know what to deal, do with because the patients still cycle through sleep and wake cycles, um, but they don't respond to any, uh, any verbal command. There's no behavioral sign that there's anybody at home at all. So the definition, the clinical definition of the vegetative state is that there is no conscious experience going on even though there is still the presence of wakefulness. So just knowing that these off-diagonal states exist is enough to tell us that 
that the basis of being conscious is not the same, not coextensive with the basis of physiological arousal. So what does make the difference? What, what is it in the brain that tells us, gives us an indication of how conscious we are? Is it the number of neurons that are sort of involved in whatever the brain is doing? No. A uh, beautiful example of that is just by considering the cerebellum. The cerebellum is a, often called the little brain, the mini brain, hanging off the back of your cortex here. The cerebellum, I'm always astonished uh, when I recall this. this, the cerebellum contains about three quarters of all the neurons in your brain. I said earlier you've got about 80 billion neurons in your brain. The majority, three quarters of them, are in the cerebellum. Only one quarter is in the rest of the brain in the cortex. Now, if you have damage to your cerebellum or are born without one, as, as happens in some rare cases, you will have various problems. You'll have problems of coordination of your body, also of your thought. Uh, but you will not lose consciousness. You can do without a cerebellum, and you will be conscious. So it's not just some gross property of number of neurons. Is it any particular region? Well, this is a trickier question. There are certainly parts of the brain that, if they are damaged, then you will lose consciousness irreversibly and forever. Uh, there are regions deep within the brainstem that act like this. There are, you know, if you have very, very broad damage across your, your cortex, this can happen as well. But it's in most cases where such regions have been identified, it's almost as if they're acting as like on-off switches rather than where the consciousness happens, if it happens any, in any particular place. I mean, you know that if you pull the plug out of your computer or the TV, of course it goes off, but that doesn't mean that the plug is, is the thing that's generating um, the picture on your TV screen. And then is it neural activity? Maybe it's how active the brain is. Maybe that's the, the sort of the gross signature of, of conscious level. This is also not true. When, you're, when you lose consciousness in sleep or even in some pathological states, your brain doesn't shut down. The activity levels change a bit depending on what's going on. But certainly in sleep, your brain is as, as active most of the time as it is during normal wakefulness. Uh, so it's not just, there's no gross measure of neural activity that suffices either. So rather than just go through a long litany and history of different things people have tried out, I'm going to leap more or less to the present day and tell you about one property of brain activity that does seem to correlate specifically with how conscious you are. And this, is a, this was discovered using a method called um, TMS and EEG. So this is our lab at Sussex from a few years ago now. And so EEG, as you probably know, is just a way of recording brain activity, electrical, electrical brain activity with sensors that, that you have, are embedded in this cap. Uh, and TMS, for the, how many people know what TMS is? I'm just trying to get a, a few. A few so this is transcranial magnetic stimulation. This is basically a big magnet, and you, there's a pedal, and you push on the pedal, and it injects a very, very uh, strong pulse of activity into the brain, sort of underneath this figure of 8-bit. So you can stimulate the brain uh, this way. So what this method allows you to do is you, basically, you stimulate the brain and you use EEG to record the echo. It's a bit like banging on the brain with an electrical hammer and then, and then listening to what happens. So this combined method is called TMS-EEG. And now, about 15 years ago, a uh, colleague of mine, in, who's now in Milan, Marcello Massimini, did a really astonishing experiment, which was published in Science at the time. And he, used this, he pioneered this method, and he used this method to see, well, what does the echo look like in sleep compared to uh, wake? So when people are unconscious compared to conscious. Now, let's just assume we're, we're looking at 
I'll, I'll distinguish wakefulness from consciousness again in a minute. But the simplest contrast you can do is awake versus sleep. So what he found was that the pattern, the response to this TMS pulse is very different when you're awake from, than from when you are asleep. And I sort of can show you this in a couple of movies. This is all dramatically slowed down. You can see the milliseconds ticking over at the top. So when you stimulate, when you're asleep, you get a response. So the brain does respond to the stimulation, but the activity stays very, very local to where the stimulation happened. It doesn't propagate very far around the brain. Uh, it goes and it comes back, but dies away reasonably soon. However, when you are uh, awake and you can see it starting again now, there is an immediate response, but then the echo shifts around in complicated patterns over space and time and lasts a lot longer. And what this tells us is that the awake brain, the conscious brain, is the different parts of the brain are speaking to each other in much more complicated and intricate ways than is happening in the sleeping brain where different parts of the brain may still be individually active but are not communicating in the same way. Following uh, a lot of experiments like this, the uh, Massimini's group just came up with a simple way of putting a number to how complicated this, this echo is. And they did it in a, in a very simple way. Basically, you can just imagine um, if you sort of treated the response as a photo over time, and then you ask how compressible that photo is in the same way that if you have, you know, when you send a photo by email, uh, it will compress it to the, the, the shortest file size that you need to regenerate the photo. So it's saying, like, how complicated, how much information do I need to describe the complexity of that, that pattern? And you put a number to that, and that's the number here. They call it the perturbation complexity index, the index of the, per of a, the complexity of a perturbation. They call it the PCI index. It's basically the first uh, or, or the beginnings of a principled consciousness meter. And that's a very exciting development because if there's one thing that catalyzes progress in science, it's the ability to measure things. I mean, we, the other example in the history of science where this is very clear is in temperature and heat. So it was the development of thermometers, which was not easy, which was fraught with controversy at the time, that catalyzed the understanding in physics that heat is not a substance that flows in and out of things. It is the mean molecular kinetic energy of, of molecules within whatever it is that you're, you're measuring. So we can measure something, maybe we can get, you know, we can make progress. But as you can see, this, so this PCI index does discriminate very nicely different levels of consciousness. Here are a bunch of healthy subjects, they're all up here. Here are people um, under anesthesia, ketamine anesthesia in this case, and they're all down here. And then when he applied the measure to patients with varying disorders of consciousness following brain damage and organized them sort of in, in order, it correlated very well with their diagnosis. So people in the vegetative state who are awake but not aware fell below this threshold. People in the so-called minimally conscious state above. Um, Locked-in syndrome where people are fully aware, just completely paralyzed, is like normal. So this is specifically reflecting conscious level now because it works in vegetative state patients. There are a couple of exceptions, like this person here has been diagnosed in the clinic as being in a vegetative state, but is showing a level of PCI that is suggestive this person might in fact be conscious. And so what this, this method is already now being used in some neurology clinics to figure out whether diagnosis might have been wrong or who's recovering, 
and, and <coughs> who else you might want to take a closer look at. Now, you don't actually need this complicated TMS EEG device uh, to do this kind of work. In Sussex, we've been doing a similar thing just by looking at the spontaneous activity of the brain. So we just record EEG from people when they're awake, uh, in this case, when they're asleep, and we just ask how complex is the brain activity? Essentially, how random is it? How spatio-temporally diverse is the activity? And we can put a number to that too. Um, so it's the same, same approach. We just basically represent all this complicated activity as strings of ones and zeros, and we ask how complex is that matrix of ones and zeros? How compressible is it? We get a number, and then we use that number as an indication of conscious level. And it sort of works too. We have here that wakeful rest is higher than mild sedation, which is higher than general anesthesia. Uh, we can also do the same thing with uh, electrodes planted deep into the brain. So this was in a collaboration, and it was work done by an old PhD student, Michael Shartner, of, of ours. And in this case, this is, these are from patients who have electrodes implanted deep into their brains. They, these are patients with severe epilepsy. So what often happens in people who are going to get brain surgery for epilepsy, they get implanted with electrodes so that the neurosurgeons can figure out where the, epilepsy, where the epileptic focus is, so which bit of the brain to cut out. But they usually have these electrodes in for quite a while, so you can do experiments while they're, while they're basically mapping the epileptic focus. And so again, the same thing. We have electrodes deep in the brain, and we can calculate the complexity. And again, it's, uh, it's higher for wakeful rest. These are all just different regions, frontal, parietal, temporal, occipital. It's higher for wakeful rest than it is, especially for early non-REM sleep, which is when you're not dreaming. The interesting thing about this data set is that REM sleep, when you are dreaming, is basically ex exactly the same as wakeful rest. So this is now, again, distinguishing wakefulness from how conscious you are. So the in terms of this measure, when you're dreaming, your brain looks the same as when you're awake. It's obviously not exactly the same, but through this lens, it's the same. Uh, th our most recent adventures using this technique were actually done in a collaboration with Robin Cahart Harris, who works here in London at Imperial. And Robin's been pioneering the resurgent neuroscientific study of psychedelics, which was sort of outlawed from neuroscience for a very long time for unfortunate reasons, given its potential clinically. Uh, but there's still very little known about what happens in the brain um, on psychedelics. And so we just, we, as a first exploratory study, we thought we'll, we'll apply the same sorts of measures. Uh, do we see changes in this index of conscious level when people are basically tripping? And the answer is yes, we do. So this is three different uh, psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, and ketamine. People argue about whether it's a psychedelic or not, but certainly in low doses, it has psychedelic effects. And in all cases, we see this increase in this level of uh, complexity for most people most of the time. So the brain is becoming more random, if you like, more unconstrained in its activity under psychedelics. And this was kind of a funny experience for us to do because we'd never, we found it interesting because there'd been no other situation where we'd seen this measure go up from the baseline of waking state. We tried a number of things, having people watch movies or engage in complicated thinking. Nothing made it go up apart from this. And so we thought, this is interesting. This is a we can show that you can go higher than, than um, 
the baseline of wakeful rest. And of course, when the media uh, got it, they sort of totally misinterpreted it as, yes, we found evidence for a higher state of consciousness, as if that's sort of some real thing. No, we just found evidence the brain is more random and, it, and its dynamics go in the opposite direction from sleep. That's different from saying, yes, there's like this higher state of consciousness. And of course, when the Daily Mail picked it up, they had to have this sidebar about the dangers of LSD um, to make sure that people didn't do anything silly. So these measures are practically useful, but why do they work? This is, this is where we get back to the need to move from a correlation to an explanation. Why should something like the complexity of brain activity or, or its response to a, a stimulation, why should that uh, explain the difference between being conscious and not conscious? Well, there's a couple of theoretical perspectives which, which speak to this, and they're, they're quite influential in the science of consciousness now. And in fact, they were the reason when I, when I finished my PhD, I moved to San Diego for a few years, motivated and inspired by these, by these ideas. And so the, the, ob the first observation is very, very straightforward. It is that every conscious experience that you have is different from every other conscious experience you've ever had or ever will have. It's enormously informative in that way. You can have an enormous variety of different conscious experiences. Every single one is different. Even the experience of pure darkness is informative in this, in this sense because it's different from every other experience you're having. That's technically what information means. It's how, how many alternatives are ruled out by something being the case. If you, have a, if you have a die and you throw it and you get a number, that rules out five alternative possibilities. Every experience that you have rules out an enormous number of alternative possible experiences. Very, very informative, which is why it's useful for the organism. And the second thing is every experience that you have is not only informative, it's also highly integrated. This is just like this face vase illusion, just to give you the impression that we don't perceive colors and shapes separately. We don't have bits of conscious experiences floating around independently as far as we know. Uh, we experience a unified conscious scene. Everything is bound together. So every conscious experience has these properties at the level of phenomenology, at the level of what experiences are like. They are both informative and they are integrated. And that sounds kind of trivial, right? And it's like, well, so what? The nice thing about putting things that way is you can start to say, well, what kinds of mechanisms, what kinds of systems also have this property of being integrated and informative? And so you can imagine systems like over here where there's just lots of independent little subsystems can be very informative because they can all enter different states, but there's no integration. So you can't have... So the brain, on this view, the brain basis of consciousness is not going to be lots of independent things. You know, fair enough. Sounds obvious, but nice. Also, it's, if you have, imagine a system where everything is connected tightly to everything else. It's fully interconnected web. Now, here, everything is integrated, but you're going to have no or very little information. There's very little potential for a system like this to enter into lots of different states. Everything is, is too tightly glued together. So it's only in systems in this kind of woolly middle ground that people generally talk of as being in the realm of complex systems where things are connected somewhat um, to each other so that the, there is a kind of global unity to what's going on, but the connections are loose and not entirely completely rigorous. So this, systems like this, this is just a caricature, of course, can, end, can be very informative as well. So how do we capture this middle ground um, and put a number to it? Well, before we put a number to it, this already explains 
some of the observations about the brain basis of consciousness that I mentioned earlier. So cortex is highly implicated in conscious experience. If you have damage to your visual cortex, you will lose uh, or your visual experience will be affected. So it's certainly implicated. And this is a slice through part of the visual cortex of the human brain. That's the monkey brain, actually. And um, this is, you can see this incredibly complicated uh, network. This is a first approximation of the anatomy of the visual system. It is not a lot of independent elements, and it's not also not fully connected. It's somewhere in this middle ground, perhaps. Whereas the cerebellum, which, as I mentioned before, doesn't seem to be involved in consciousness at all, actually behaves, if you look at its anatomy, it does indeed look a little bit like this. The, the cerebellum is often called this kind of crystalline structure. It's lots of semi-independent circuits um, that interact with each other, that are, seem to be deliberately functionally isolated from each other. So we can already get a grasp on why the cerebellum is not associated with consciousness and the cortex is, because the cerebellum is not the right kind of uh, organization for supporting this balance of integration and differentiation that characterizes conscious experience. And we can get a bit more sophisticated than this. We can start to think, instead of just like looking at it and saying, yeah, no, that's simple and that's complex, we can try to actually put a number to it again, like, like uh, Massimini was doing with his PCI index. And there are various ways, and we've been working on various ways of doing this for years now. There's different measures of integrated information and causal density, and I'll ask questions about these equations later, so please make sure you remember them and fully understand them. Um, but but the, this, is, this is why this field is, is kind of quite exciting now because we can just refine these more specific measures of exactly how we operationalize this idea of complexity and then see in practice uh, which work and which don't. And there we kind of hone in on the basis of conscious level. Um, and there are lots of interesting implications for this work besides its basic scientific and philosophical importance. I mentioned earlier that there are patients in the vegetative state, uh, and these techniques are already being used to identify residual awareness in patients who've been previously diagnosed as unconscious. With uh, Massimini and another colleague of ours, Tim Bain, we recently, we sort of wrote a recent paper, just came out a few months ago, a couple of months ago, in, in January actually, uh, applying this way of thinking to what we call islands of awareness. And what's interesting about, what we found interesting about this, is there are now things that used to be purely within the realm of, of philosophical thought experiment that are now becoming a material reality, and people aren't really thinking about them with the seriousness that they should be. Uh, and so if you, if, you can, if you take this line of thinking and say a system that is sufficiently complex in the specific ways we're talking about, if that exists, even if it's isolated from the rest of the world, maybe it's the basis for some sort of conscious experience. And I'm not saying your phone is conscious or, or your fridge is conscious or the internet, but stuff at least made of neurons. And there are now some examples of exactly this kind of thing going on. So this is the, if you like, it's, the fa it's, it's related to the famous brain in a vat experiment. The actual philosophical brain in a vat is how do you know you're not a brain in a vat? But... Um, you can, the premise of it is also that this brain is not connected at the moment to any internal or external stimulation. Could it be conscious? Could anything conscious be going on in this brain, even though it's not connected to anything? And there are some weird examples of this kind of work now 
moving out of the philosopher's armchair and into the lab. This was a paper which really freaked me out when I read it about a year ago in Nature. And it was describing an advance in neuro neurosurgical medicine. Um, and you know, one problem if people suffer brain damage is that you know, the brain dies quite, quite quickly when it's starved of oxygen. And this is why its, it's strokes are so debilitating uh, and why brain death is, is death. So what these people did was they said, well, I wonder if we can have a technology that can sort of revive brains a little bit if they've been starved of oxygen. So they designed this weird Heath Robinson type machine, looks crazy, uh, you, and you put a, a brain in it and you pump it full of all these fluids and, and whatnot. And they wanted to see whether this brain could regain activity. So they actually took, um, they went to a slaughterhouse and took brains out of pigs that had just been tossed in the, in the bin and had been dead for a few hours. Now this is, this is, and they took the brains out, put them in this, started the pump, and they started to see stuff. They started to see that the cellular activity in the brain had restarted. There was synaptic activity. Um, this brain was revived to some extent. And this is an incredibly, it's, it's a very impressive feat of medicine, but it's also quite disturbing because, well, maybe that brain is now having experiences. And if so, of what? Uh, the authors were remarkably aware, you know, that I, I want to give them a lot of credit because they were very well aware of the ethical minefield they were opening here. So they deliberately made sure they applied kind of a neural blocking agent, basically an anesthetic, to the brain just to make sure there would be no organized neural activity. And so there wasn't because they prevented it. But it's easy to imagine somebody doing it without doing that. And then we're faced with the thing about, oh, what, what do we do? There's a case where the ethics needs to get ahead of the science because the science is, is moving rapidly. Another example, and this was um, something that for me was personally very meaningful. I was chatting with a neurosurgeon in Edinburgh a couple of years ago, and he told me about an operation that happens very rarely, usually in children um, because their brains are, are more uh, plastic and the recovery is, is much better, for kids with very, very, very severe epilepsy. In this case, I mean epileptic seizures maybe tens or dozens or 20 or 50 a day. And as a last resort, what surgeons have done for a while is remove the diseased hemisphere entirely. This is called a hemispherectomy. You can just cut out the whole, it's usually the right hemisphere that, caught, that is um, involved in these kinds of seizures. You can just remove it. Amazingly, if you do it early enough, the outcomes are usually pretty good. You know, kids lose a little bit of motor tone in the opposite side of the body, they recover and uh, can do very well. Um, I had always wondered what they put in place when they take the hemisphere out. Turns out, ping pong balls. Um, they used to anyway. But yeah, they, they're light, they don't crush. I mean, why not? Ping pong balls. Um, but there's a new operation now which is, which is done called a hemispherotomy. And this is, this is different because you now leave the hemisphere in. You get better outcomes that way because you're disturbing, if you like, the balance of blood flow. You're disturbing things less if you leave the hemisphere in. So they totally disconnect it, but it remains inside the skull and connected to the vascular system. So this is an alive bit of brain completely disconnected from everything inside uh, next to the bit of brain that's preserved. This could be an island of awareness. This could be an island of consciousness. We don't know. And the third context, and this is probably 
the most concerning of all of these cases. How many people know about cortical organoids? Um, so this is, a, again, a rapidly developing technology, developed for very good medical reasons. When people are developing drugs, they tend to not, they, you know, test them on animals, and they tend to not work when you try them in humans. It's a classic thing. Uh, so what people have started doing is developing growing mini-brains from human stem cells. These are called organoids. So their organoids can be anything, can be heart, lung. They're basically lab-grown models of human organs that can be used uh, for medical research. And this has been going on for a while, but now people are developing cerebral organoids, cortical organoids, mini-brains. They're not really mini-brains because they don't have all the complexity. Of, they're not just shrunk down. But they are three-dimensional organized structures with differentiated types of neurons in them, and they show activity. And these things can now be grown by, they can be farmed. You know, they can be grown by the thousand, by the, and they are being grown by the thousand. Um, and again, the question arises, is there some sort of threshold where there is something it is like to be a cortical organoid? Again, there's no answer to that yet, but we can imagine some of these measures being useful in a, constraining that question, but I really mention it as a case where the ethics, again, needs to get ahead of the science and why a scientific understanding of consciousness is not just a philosophical uh, exercise. It's really important. So I'd now like to move on to talk about conscious contents, the second of these large-scale properties of being conscious. How do we explain what we're conscious of right here and right now, given that we are conscious? And let's start really simple with vision. We tend to focus on vision. It's easy to study. Visual experiences dominate uh, a lot of our lives, but I always want to qualify this because we, you know, we have other senses too. They just don't often get a look in. Um, but we will start with vision. And I think it makes a couple of important points very well. The first is that what we perceive visually is in some sense both less than and more than what's out there in the world. And this is very obvious if we take something as simple as color. So we know that there is this whole electromagnetic spectrum of light. And what we call the visible part of the spectrum is only a tiny slice, a thin slice of this reality. And everything we visu visually experience is built from this tiny slice of what's actually going on out there in the world. But it's not just a filtering down to that thin slice of reality. We generate colors from it. We have, we're, we're sensitive only to three uh, specific wavelengths, but out of that, we generate all the colors that we could potentially perceive. Colors don't exist out there in the world. We've known that since, since Newton. Our brain makes colors from the universe. I think it's Cezanne who said, color is where the brain and the universe meet. And I think the same applies to everything we experience. That's the sort of, to anticipate where I'm going. That applies to everything. So we generate color from colorless electromagnetic signals. I want to show you one demonstration of how constructed color is. I think this should take the lights down. This is called the lilac chaser illusion. If you focus your eyes on the black cross, try not to blink, try not to move your eyes. And I want you to raise your hand if you start to see something odd happen. Okay. Is anyone not seeing a green disc go round? I think most people... If you move your eyes and blink, you, the, the magenta patches will come back. 
but if you focus again, they should all disappear and be replaced with a single green disc moving around. Does that happen? Yeah. Okay, great. There is no green disc. There is nothing green going on at all. Um, what's happening in this really compelling demonstration is actually three separate things going on. The first is something we call Troxler fading. So these patches all have indistinct boundaries. And if there's something with an indistinct boundary in the periphery of your vision, it tends to fade away and be filled in by what's around it. That's Troxler fading. The second is apparent motion. So when things disappear and reappear adjacent in close spatial proximity, we perceive or infer movement between them. This is why you know, film works. We infer movement between rapidly presented static frames. And the third thing that's going on is colour opponency. So these magenta patches, our brains adapt to them so that when they disappear, uh, the thing that we perceive as moving is replaced by the opposite in colour space to magenta. And the opposite in colour space to magenta is green. There's actually a fourth thing going on here, which is I've just mentioned before that colours don't exist out there in the world. Turns out that magenta exists even less than other colours. Uh, <laughs> Magenta is, if you, if you get magenta, you, you get it by mixing red and blue light together. That's how you, you get something that looks magenta. Um, and the electromagnetic spectrum, green is in the middle of blue, of, of the, you know, these wavelengths aren't blue, green, and red, but what we call blue and red are on either flank what we call green. So when the brain gets blue and red, it's sort of expecting green because green is in the middle. And it doesn't get it, so it makes something up, and what it makes up is magenta which means that the green you're seeing there is actually not not green. <laughs> okay, that hopefully is completely clear. <laughs> and the idea that um, I want to run with to explain this phenomena, and in fact all of our experiences, all of our conscious contents, is the idea that the brain is a prediction machine. And here's the basic thought. This is a thought that goes way back. It goes back thousands of years. Um, prominent in Kant and, and others and Helmholtz in the 19th century. But the idea is that, you know, imagine being a brain. You're locked inside this bony cavity of the skull. You have no direct access to things in the world, whatever they are, whatever they may actually consist in. All you get as a brain are noisy and ambiguous sensory signals that aren't colored, they don't have shapes or smells, they're just sensory signals that indirectly reflect what's out there. These signals do not come with labels that I am from a cat or I'm from a coffee cup or even that I'm from the eyes or the ears. They are just signals. And the brain is trying to figure out what's out there based on this ambiguous barrage of, of incoming energy. And perception on this view has to be a process of inference, a process of best guessing in which the brain combines this ambiguous sensory input with prior expectations or knowledge about the way the world is to form its best guess of what's out there. And that is what we consciously perceive. It's, the, it's not a window, the eyes aren't a transparent window onto an externally existing mind-independent reality. What we perceive is the brain's best guess of the causes of the sensory signals that it encounters. And again, there's a couple of pretty easy and familiar demonstrations to give a flavor for this. What I really want to communicate is it goes much deeper than these rather superficial examples that I can show uh, in a presentation. This is, how many people have seen this before? Adelson's checkerboard. Uh, yeah, not, not everybody, a few of you. So if you look at this image here and just look at the two patches A and B, 
Now, they should seem to be different shades of grey, right? Everybody see that? Yes, good. They are, of course, exactly the same shade of grey. Otherwise, I wouldn't be wasting time showing it to you. They don't look it, but they really are the same shade of grey. If I, I can prove it by putting the same image up here, and I've joined the patches together with a bars of the same colour grey, and you can see there's no division, there's... There's no uh, discontinuity. It really is the same shade of grey. If you think I'm cheating by putting a, actually a different image up there, well, I'll just move this bar across, and you can see it works here as well. It's the same shade of grey, but if I take the bar away, it looks different. So what's going on here? What's going on here is the brain has wired into its visual cortex, deeply inscribed into its the mechanisms of visual perception, that objects in shadow appear darker than they are. And so the brain is compensating for that, which is why we perceive this patch to be lighter than it really is. And so that's one example of prior expectations really shaping what we consciously perceive. Here's another example. Um, I don't know how many of you would have seen this before. If you have, I apologize. Uh, but if you just look at this for a little bit, it should appear to be a bunch of maybe black and white splodges. Bunch of splodges. Nothing much apart from that. But of course, it's not just that. If I fill it in, you'll see it's a, it's a photo of a woman in a hat kissing a horse. I don't know why it's that photo, it's that photo. So there's, there's structure, there's, there are objects, people, actions, behavior. There's something going on in this image. And if you look at it for a while, I don't have time to leave it on for, forever, but just try and soak in this image for a second. And if I take the image away again, drain the colors out, you should still be able to see echoes of that image in this black and white pattern. This is called a, a Mooney image or a two-tone image. And once you've kind of seen it, it's very difficult to unsee. And what's remarkable here is that the sensory information hasn't changed. All that's changed is your brain's best guess of the causes of that information. And that changes what you see. So now you see at least shadows of a horse and a person where previously there was just a meaningless jumble. So how do we make sense of all this in the, in the brain? Well, it, this view of perception as, a, as an inference about what's out there really changes how we think about perception unfolding in the brain. This is a kind of straw man classical way of thinking about perception. It's how things seem. It seems as though there's a real world out there that we take in information through our senses and as this information percolates deeper and deeper into the brain, we sort of read it out. So early stages of the visual cortex might read out things like edges and contours and maybe colors. And then later stages, things like uh, objects or object parts. And then at higher stages in places like the infratemporal cortex here, this is a monkey brain, so this is a monkey, you, have, you, know, you read out things like faces and people and actions. So there's this almost hierarchical unfolding from, from the outside in. The brain is just reading off what's out there in the world in this outside in or bottom up direction. That sort of seems like a reasonable way. And, and in fact, something like this, we know that the visual system is organized like this, that there are these pathways that flow deeper and deeper into the brain. But there are also lots of connections that go in the other direction, that go from the inside of the brain back out to the sensory surfaces. And in fact, there are more of these connections flowing in the top down inside-out direction than there are coming into the brain from the world. Which is a bit puzzling if you think perception is this process of reading the world. It's more a process of writing the world. 
So the way to think of perception in terms of prediction machines is very different to that classical view. Instead of perception depending on sensory signals coming into the brain from the bottom up or the outside in, what we perceive depends as much, if not more, if not entirely, well, not entirely, but more, on predictions, perceptual predictions flowing in the opposite direction from the top down or the inside out. So we don't passively perceive our worlds, we actively generate them all the time. There's a sort of formal mathematical basis for thinking of perception this way, which is um, Bayesian inference. Uh, Bayes, Thomas Bayes was a, a priest in the 17th century who formalized how to reason with probabilities. And the idea, this is what the brain is doing when it's perceiving. And so the, the basic concept here is you have you know, some like sensory data, which is, this, this is a I won't go through the math particularly, this is a probability distribution. So like stuff is going on here, but there's some prior belief. And this prior belief might be things like, it's a dog. And this sensory data might be something like, hmm, animal in the distance. And then the brain's best guess of what's going on is basically a multiplication of these together. So you get what you call the posterior belief. It's the best guess of the causes of this sensory data given your brain's expectations about what's going on. And these expectations can be very, very simple, like light comes from above or things in shadow are darker. You don't, you're not aware that your brain has these expectations. It just does. Or they can be expectations that you consciously have, like you might walk out of here expecting to meet a friend and tell them how dull and awful this talk has been. Uh, and then you know, that expectation will shape what you perceive when you meet someone who may look, may look a bit like your friend, but in fact is not. And so what's happening in the brain is this, con I, I contend anyway, this, this continual process of inference about what's causing sensory signals. And the mechanism by which the brain does this, this is going in a little bit more detail, this is the most detailed slide, and I won't unpack it all, is that one way for the brain to perform this, this kind of mathematical reasoning with probabilities is if it's continually trying to reduce prediction error. So the idea here is the brain's predictions about what's going on indeed flow in this top-down direction from the inside out, and then sensory signals coming in the outside-in, bottom-up direction, what we are used to thinking of as the input, you know, maybe conveying the information about the world, actually, these signals just convey errors. They convey the difference between what the brain expects and what it gets at every level of processing within the brain. Perception in this case becomes a process of the brain continually updating its predictions to try and minimize prediction error. So ideally, we perceive most accurately, if you like, when there's no sensory input coming in at all because we've perfectly predicted it. This really changes, I, I want to emphasize it. For me, it was a sort of very radical reframing. It's so natural for us to think of sensory signals coming in as conveying information about what's there. In some sense, that's still true. There's still information about it. But we don't read that information out to form our perceptions. It, these signals are used to calibrate and update the predictions, and it's the predictions that are the basis of what we perceive. This is still a theory. It's not something I want you to yeah, assume as, as completely uncontroversial fact. But it's a very compelling way to think about perception. Um, I also just wanted to point out that this theory of how, how the brain does perception, you'll notice, is not a theory about consciousness. I'm not saying this is where the magic happens. What it is, though, it's a way, it's a, it's a theory of explaining, of mapping between mechanisms and what we perceive. By speaking in a language of predictions going in one direction and prediction errors, I can start to 
write down, say things about why particular experiences are the way they are and not some other way. Why the visual world is organized into objects, for instance, whereas the sense of emotion isn't. Different kinds of predictions. And there is some sort of evidence accumulating for this, these ideas. Now, this is a pretty old experiment we did a few years ago. And it just tests the simple hypothesis that if all this is true, then you should consciously perceive more accurately and more quickly things you expect rather than things you don't expect. So we should see what we expect more than the other way around. And we tested this in a very simple experiment where, in, where people came in and in one eye they had a, a continually sort of changing mass of colored oblongs which started with a high contrast and faded low. And in the other eye, there was either a picture of a house or a picture of a face. And if you put yourself in this situation, you'll start by seeing only the oblongs. And then at some point, the image, either the house or the face, will break through and you'll see it. And what we were interested in was whether that breakthrough happened more quickly if you were expecting to see a face and the image was a face, um, compared to if you're expecting to see a house and the image is a face. So do we, is it... Do our predictions get, because if predictive coding theory is right, then we should, if we're expecting a face and we get sensory data from a face, that prediction should be verified more quickly and we should see things more quickly. And that's actually what happens. That's just uh, data saying that's what happens. We see things that we expect more quickly and more accurately than things <coughs> that we don't expect. So you could say, to summarize these, these kinds of experiments, that instead of saying something like, I'll believe it when I see it, it's actually probably more accurate to say that I'll see it when I believe it. <laughs> Which has a lot of implications for media. Um, now, these are all very, there's, there's you know, shed loads of simple experiments like that, all pointing in more or less the same direction, not universally. But we're still very far from explaining something like the richness of uh, the perceptual world in which we live. I mean, just, it's not just seeing a face. We, we experience these, these rich, multimodal scenes full of landscapes and objects and, and characters and all sorts of things. Can we take the story and really explain something about the rich phenomenology of everyday perception? Um, I just wanted to make a mention here of a nice confluence between this way of thinking and a concept that I came across some years ago from art history called the beholder's share. This is kind of classic concept in, in 20th century history of art. Uh, popularized by Ernst Gombrich. And the beholder's share was the idea uh, in thinking about how people experience artworks. And he says, Gombrich in 1960, that's the power of expectation rather than the power of conceptual knowledge that molds what we see in life no less than in art. So the beholder's share is this idea that what we experience is brought to an image by the observer. That's the beholder's share. We, we creatively, the brain creatively completes an image to generate our perceptual experience. For me, that's very, very resonant with this idea of top-down predictions, interpreting, giving form, shape, and structure to otherwise meaningless sensory signals. Um, Gombrich also said, there's no innocent eye. You cannot perceive what you cannot classify. Again, very um, resonant with these new ideas. And it always comes to my mind when I look at things like Impressionist artworks, because in, in Impressionist paintings like this, uh, what the artist has managed to do is sort of reverse engineer the visual system entirely to paint not the outcome of perceptual inference, but its raw materials. In Impressionism, you're painting the variations in brightness that serve as the raw materials on which the brain can do its interpretive work. 
which is why we sort of project a landscape into and onto these kind of fairly um, you know, incoherent, well, they're, they're coherent from a distance, but there's, you know, the, when you get close up to a painting like this, you can't see, there's no detail in it. It's, it's, it's just providing the source on which inference does its work. So for me, this is a really important clue that yes, it's this behold the sheriff, this top-down element of perception that is really responsible for giving our everyday experience the texture and the phenomenology that it has. And of course, this can go a little bit awry if the balance between predictions and prediction errors is changed. So if your, prediction, if you, if your predictions are sort of misaligned somehow, you can see things that maybe aren't there. Um, you might see... You might see faces in clouds. We all can see faces in clouds. There's a general term for this called pareidolia, which means uh, seeing patterns in things. Um, and this is because faces for humans and many other primates are incredibly important stimuli in the world. So we have very strong prior expectations to see faces everywhere. So we can see faces, or at least echoes of faces, where there are no faces. There's a brilliant Twitter feed called Faces Picks, which I... <laughs> I highly recommend that you follow. There's so many things all over the world that look like bizarre faces. And um, you can just collect them. Now, so if this, is, if this line of thinking has legs, we could maybe simulate what hallucinations are like. We could maybe generate simulated hallucinations and therefore understand the brain basis of hallucinatory perception, which in this way of thinking is not fundamentally different from normal perception. It's just like when the balance has been shifted a bit. It's not a fundamentally different thing. Uh, so we, and the, we did this a few years ago with um, Kesuke Suzuki from my lab. And what we did was we took these neural networks, which are uh, these days, these are just computer algorithms that, that simulate actually the bottom-up pathway through a visual system. And they're very, very good at classifying images. You show... Uh, you, I mean, Image search on your phone works this way. You show an image to a network like this, it'll tell you what the image is of or what's in the image. Uh, it's kind of reading out the information in the image in a bottom-up direction. But what we can do is basically run it backwards. And this was first done by Google. They called it Deep Dream. And we took the same idea and did it in a bit more different way. And we said, OK, let's fix the top level and basically say dog. There is dog. And then for every image we show it, it updates the image rather than its guess about what's in the image until the prediction error goes away. So it's basically telling, updating the image so that its prediction of dog is satisfied. So what we did was we took a panoramic uh, video of Sussex campus, so it's 360-degree video, and then for every frame, we applied this algorithm so that the algorithm is imposing dog for every single frame, and then we kind of make a movie of it, and people put a virtual reality headset on it, and they look around, and they have a very strange experience. This is, um, like, it, it's much more powerful if you actually wear the display so you can look around, but there are a few too many dogs here. It doesn't normally look like this. <laughs> and what's intriguing here is these aren't just dogs photoshopped onto an image, right? They're, they're emerging organically from the scene. And this is perhaps not, you know, people try and say, well, what is this really a model of? Perhaps it's, it's got some affinity to things like psychedelic hallucinations rather than psychotic hallucinations. Uh, and it's a clue about what's happening in the brain when we have experiences of this kind. But it, more importantly, it's a clue of this is what's going on all the time. It's just we don't notice it when the balance is, is kind of normal. 
But if you tip the balance one way or the other, strange things start to happen. So this way of thinking tells us that you know, hallucination is a kind of uncontrolled perception where our best guesses are not reined in by things in the world. And by the same token, we can think of normal perception in the here and now as a kind of hallucination, but a controlled hallucination in which the brain's best guesses uh, keep a grip on the world by treating sensory input as a sort of prediction error signal. What we perceive all the time is uh, a hallucination, but it's a controlled hallucination. This does not mean that things don't exist. I sometimes get misinterpreted and people say, you say everything's a hallucination, go jump in the front of a bus. Um, no, like, it's the way the bus appears in our conscious experience that is a controlled hallucination. Buses have solidity and extent that don't depend on the existence of my brain, which is why it, you shouldn't jump in front of one. Now, I'm going to sort of finish this section by just hinting at how far we can take this story, because I've showed, you know, we've gone from very constrained experiments and little demonstrations of colour and that to faces in natural scenes and paintings. What we're working on in the lab, the line I'm trying to follow is this applies to everything, not just the specific contents of what we experience, but, for instance, the perception of time. Time is a very puzzling phenomenon. I could go on about that for a whole other lecture. Nobody knows what it is, why it flows. Uh, it's as puzzling to physicists as it is to philosophers as it is to neuroscientists. But we experience time. We experience duration. We experience the moment of the now. We have no time sensors inside our heads. How do we do this? We have a circadian clock, which gives us jet lag, but we don't have a kind of stopwatch in our heads to measure time. And if we did, that wouldn't solve it anyway. It would be like saying, I hear because I've got a little band in my head that plays music. Um, how do we perceive time? So Warwick Roseboom, who works with, with us at Sussex as well, has for a long time been advancing the idea that time is the, is the brain's best guess of the rate of change of perceptual information in the scene. When lots of things happen that are salient to us, we tend to experience the duration as, as being longer. Uh, and so what we, to sort of test this idea, what we did was took loads of videos of, uh, this is a cow in the field next to our lab, um, but we also took videos of busy city scenes and all sorts of different scenes. Humans rated them, and they indeed rated uh, busier scenes as lasting longer than non-busy scenes and showed all sorts of other biases that people show. And then we trained again a neural network like we use for the hallucination machine to sort of pick up salient things happening, and then we used that network to generate an estimate of duration, and it matched the human data very well. So we can now begin to understand time as a kind of inference about what's happening in our perceptual world. We construct time from our, from our senses. And it's not just time. There's also change. Now, change, again, this seems like a funny thing, right? Things change or they don't change. And if things change in the world, then surely, if we're looking at them, you know, we'll see, we'll experience them as changing. Uh, it seems sort of reasonable to suppose that. And this, of course, is not true either. Just like time, just like colour, just like dogness or chairness, change is something the brain infers. It's its best guess of what's going on in the world. So sometimes things can change and we don't experience them as changing. So this, I don't know if you've seen this before or if you've noticed, but the entire bottom part of this image has changed colour while I was talking, from that colour to that colour. Now you probably didn't, did anybody notice that change in colour? No. So this leads to the question, what were you, 
you know, some people will say, well, well, that's weird because I didn't perceive the change, so was I still perceiving this color or, or this color at the end? The resolution to that question is, no, you were perceiving that color at the end, but you didn't perceive the change. The change is a separable aspect of your perception. The change of perception is not the same thing as the perception of change. There are people with certain kinds of brain injury who uh, can't perceive change, so they sort of perceive the world in, in, in static snapshots. But they actually experience the loss of that part of their experience, whereas here you, were just no, you didn't even notice that you weren't perceiving change. It just you didn't perceive change. And perhaps most fundamentally, this is something we're, we're looking at right now, we have the impression that what we perceive is real. Yeah, I perceive these, you, I mean, you do exist, but I perceive you as existing out there in the world, not as inferences that my brain is making. I perceive colors as being properties of the world and not as constructions of my brain. Why is this? Why, why, why do we perceive things as really existing? And um, this is, I think, actually, this is why people think consciousness is such an intractable problem, because we perceive our, the contents of our experience as being real properties of the world, and it all gets very, very mysterious. But this is also an aspect of perception that the brain constructs. Sometimes we don't experience things as real. If you stare at the sun, you have a retinal afterimage, and you don't experience that as being a real part of the world. It's a glitch in your vision, and you experience it that way. Many other examples like that. There are some psychiatric conditions like depersonalization and derealization. People don't hallucinate, but they they experience their worlds and themselves as, as, as lacking in reality. So we're beginning to experimentally play around with this idea as well. This is a really in-progress video. But what we can do here is, this is um, Alberto Mariola from the lab, and uh, we take, a again, a panoramic video in the lab, and then people come into the lab and sit exactly where we took the video from, and they wear a headset with a camera on the front, and so they look around at the real world through the camera, but then at a certain point, we flip the input to the pre-recorded video. And if you do this cleverly enough, people don't notice. So what they are now experiencing is not real, but they experience it as being real. So we can use this intervention to start messing around with how far can we push things before people lose the perception that it's real, um, which is a, is a really fun thing to do. <laughs> really mess around with people this way. Uh, so that's the end of the content section. The take-home message from here is that what we perceive consciously is the brain's best guess of the causes of its sensory input. And now in the last 15 minutes, and then I'll wrap up for questions, um, I'll talk about the self. And when talking about the self, the main point here is that the self is not what you think it is. I'm not sure what you think it is, but it's probably not what you think it is. There is a natural way to think of the self. This is the kind of straw man version of the self. There's a world out there with stuff in it, provides us with sensations. There's a self, which is the recipient of all this wonderful information. The self reads it out, forms a perception of the world. Uh, there we go. And then sort of does some action, and we get new sensory information. The self is the sort of the perceiver. The self is what does the perception. Now, I don't think that's right at all. I think the self is a perception too. It's not the thing that does the perceiving. The self is a perception. One consequence, so it's another kind of controlled hallucination. It's another kind of brain-based best guess. One clue about this is there are actually many different ways in which we experience being a self. There's the experience of being a body and of having this particular object in the world that is my body, and this isn't my body. There's the experience of having a first-person perspective, seeing the world from a particular point of view. 
There's the experience of intending to do things, being the cause of actions that happen. Free will, people often talk about that. There's the narrative self, the experience of being a continuous person over time, over months, maybe over years. And there's the social self, the experience of being you is partly refracted through the minds of others. So I experience being me. The experience of me is partly defined by what I think you all are thinking about me. Uh, and all of these aspects of selfhood can come apart. And I won't go through them, but you can find, for instance, a neurological or psychiatric condition or an experimental manipulation that can independently manipulate all of these different aspects of self, which suggests that this thing which we experience as being a unified me is a construction because it can come apart in all sorts of different ways. I'll give you one example, which is the bodily self. So we experience part of the universe as being my body, our body, and the rest of it as not. We somehow make this distinction. It's called the experience of body ownership. Uh, and there's, the idea here is that, again, the brain is making its best guess about what is and what is not the body. And there's a very well-known demonstration of this, and I'm sure a lot of you will have seen this before, but I am going to show it again. How many people have seen the rubber hand illusion experiment? Um, not everybody. Okay, so this is the rubber hand illusion experiment. It's very easy to do. You can do it at home. All you need, I'm sure you've all got a rubber hand at home. Um, so you... <laughs> You, you take somebody, you put their real hand so they can't see it behind a partition, they focus their attention on this fake hand, and then the experimenter, the guy in green here, takes paintbrushes and he simultaneously strokes the real hand and the fake hand while people are focusing their attention on the fake hand. Now, imagine being this person's brain. What's happening, you are this person's brain, you see something that looks roughly like a hand, and you experience touch because you, you're being touched, and you see this fake hand being touched. So it's this is good evidence for the brain to make a best guess that, well, you know, it doesn't really look like it's not my hand, but whatever. You know, I'm getting all this evidence that <laughs> I'm going to make the conclusion that it's somehow my hand. And it's a very, very weird experience. And a way to test it, you know, you can measure clever things like skin conductance and all sorts of things. But the most fun way to test it is going to be demonstrated here <laughs> is to do that. And... Um, <coughs> And so you can tell without any clever statistics that this guy has sort of assimilated a fake hand to his body in some way. Uh, we like this experiment so much, we did the world's largest rubber hand study last year at Sussex um, with 400 and something people. We ran on the rubber hand illusion, uh, which hilariously involved the postdoc leading it. He had to spend about three days with a nail file filing down these rubber hands because they were too shiny. Well, we couldn't find a, you know, where we ordered them from. Um, and then we ran the entire psychology first year on this experiment. The reason for this is we wanted to understand the individual variability, because actually this, this, this illusion works much better for some people than for other people. What's the difference that makes that difference? And it turns out that the standard story about the rubber hand, that it's about the integration of sensory signals from different modalities, touch and vision, may not really be what's going on. All this graph is showing is that we, it, it, it really matters how hypnotizable you are. So we also measured the uh, hypnotizability of each, of each of the students, their uh, response to imaginative suggestion being the more modern way to put it. And it turns out that if you are highly hypnotizable, you experience the illusion very strongly. It's almost as if the experimental context is, is encouraging you, hypnotizing you to have that experience. And if you're not hypnotizable, you don't have it much at all. There's always a difference between when you stroke the hand, the fake and rubber hand synchronously, where it works, compared to asynchronously, where it doesn't. 
but the actual experience people report depends entirely on how hypnotizable they are. So that was just uh, yeah, another, so that's part, part of the top-down. If you're very hypnotizable, you will impose top-down suggestions more strongly. You can do, we've been doing other versions of this stuff for a while as well. This is the so-called body swap illusion. Here, two people wear headsets. Their camera's on the front again. They face each other, and we swap the feeds. So this person sees uh, herself or himself through her eyes, from her perspective, and vice versa. And then we get them to shake hands. And when they shake hands, that gets this sort of critical multisensory stim uh, stimulation that, again, the brain makes a different best guess, like, oh, I must actually be over there. And you get something like an out-of-body experience. Uh, you see yourself, you feel yourself to be seeing you from an external perspective. Um, I'll skip that, I think. Uh, and this, I think, speaks to you know, more general implication because for millennia, people have been reporting things like out-of-body experiences and interpreting them as evidence that the soul must have an immaterial basis because it, we can experience ourselves as floating free from the material body. Uh, so it can't depend on the material body. That, of course, is totally wrong-headed thinking. Hmm? We'll, talk, we'll do Q&A at the end, but you... you, you um, you, I, so people do have these experiences. So this is the first thing to say. People have the experiences they say they're having, but the having of an out-of-body experience is not evidence that the soul is immaterial. It's just evidence that there are certain conditions under which the brain makes a very unusual best guess about where the first-person perspective is. Um, so I'm coming to the end now, and I'm going to just skip very quickly through this last bit, which is that we experience our bodies not only as objects in the world, we also experience them from the inside. This is called what we call interoception. There's a large part of the brain is processing, dealing with, controlling signals that come from the deep physiological interior of the body. Brains, after all, are for keeping us alive. This also helps us understand other aspects of conscious selfhood. For instance, we can think of emotions as also kinds of perceptions based on exactly the same principles. But emotions are perceptions now of the interior of the body. So just as a visual experience is a prediction about visual signals, emotions we can think of as the brain's best guess of changes in interoceptive signals coming from the interior of the body that are basically telling the brain how well, how good a job it's doing at staying alive. And if you think about that a little bit more, it sort of makes subjective sense. People, this is not imaging of data. This is just where people report different emotions on their body. We all know this. We tend to, for instance, feel anxiety often in our fingertips or somewhere, and uh, pride in our, <laughs> in our heads, of course, um, and happiness sort of in the top. And so we, we, emotion is a very embodied kind of experience anyway, and it turns out probably depends on the perception of these internal bodily signals. And it also begins to hint why emotions are different from, let's say, visual experiences. Metaphorically, emotions might have shapes. A pain might be sharp. You might have dull level of anxiety. But they're not literally sharp or dull. They don't have shapes the same way uh, the table here has a shape. Why not? Well, vision is trying to figure out what's distally out there in the world, for which shape is a useful kind of way of summarizing sensory data. But data from the body is reflecting how well control is going. How well am I doing at staying alive? So emotions are structured that way. We tend to feel good or bad to varying degrees, rather than round or square. But it's the same basic principle. 
Um, I'm going to skip that. And yeah, this is just making the point that our experiences of the body are very different from the experiences of the world, but they can be understood in the same way as predictions, but predictions that have different functions. And this is, again, what I mean right at the beginning by moving from correlation to explanation. And if you take this line of thinking to its sort of maximum, and, I, this is, and I've sort of been thinking along these lines, what you get to is that the experience of being a self is so intimately tied to our nature as living organisms that, that people for a long time have sort of tend to think of the brain as some kind of computer that the body carries around from meeting to meeting uh, and have tried to sort of separate the body from the mind and from consciousness. I mean, Descartes, who's again quite responsible for this, part of this is driven by the need to make us special and not similar to other animals. Of course, we are very similar to other animals. But if, if the mechanisms of perception, of any kind of perception, are evolutionarily rooted in regulation of the body, that's, that's why we have perception in the first place. Everything we perceive can be traced to the origin of these prediction mechanisms that ultimately are geared towards regulation of the body. So we cannot understand our experiences of the self and of the world except in light of our nature as living organisms. So we perceive the world with, through, and because of the fact that we are living organisms. And this is a conclusion I didn't expect to really come to, but I'm kind of glad that I, I did. It's, sort of, it's a very satisfying way to, to recognize the importance, what makes us different from machines, from computers, from robots. Something fundamentally different. I'm not saying that only living things can be conscious. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. But we can only understand our own human consciousness in light of our nature as meat machines, as beast machines. So let me summarize and then I'll stop. This is the kind of content and self bit together. So what we perceive is not an object, a direct readout of a mind-dependent reality. It's a brain-based best guess, a controlled hallucination. This applies also to the experience of what in the world is our body, one element of self. The same argument, I don't have time, but it applies to basically every other aspect of self also. So, but perceptions of self are not to do with finding out what's there. They're to do with control and regulation. So the character, the way we experience being me, is fundamentally different from the way I experience being the world. But it's not the self that does the perceiving. The self is the kind of perception. So to take home from this section is that instead of I think, therefore I am, I predict myself. Therefore I am. I am the sum, the ensemble of a whole collection of self-related predict predictive perceptions. So let me, I've got five more minutes, so I'll just rattle off a couple of implications and, and stop. One implication of all this, if perception is a matter of construction, we all have different conscious experiences. We all have our own individual personalized inner universes because we will all have different, to some degree, prior expectations about what's going on. You remember the dress? How many people see it as blue and black? How many people see it as white and gold? Yes, so that's quite a good even split, right? So this, was, this is a hilarious example of how given the same image, we see different realities. Um, the real dress, by the way, is blue and black. So those of you who think it's white and gold are actually wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but we will see it differently. And this has, I think, a lot. So there's a, you can follow. I had a, wrote a feature in Scientific American last year about this, that 
that there's a lot of interesting social implications to this. If we really perceive things as being real, it makes it harder to understand that other people can have different experiences. And if you can't recognize the potential that other people can see things differently, then it's harder to, to talk to them. And so it's a bit like the, the echo chambers of social media, but really drilling down to basic levels of how we perceive and experience our immediate worlds around us. The second implication is we can now start to shed new light on a lot of psychiatric and neurological disorders. In psychiatry, to be very unkind to psychiatry, until recently it's mainly been about treating symptoms rather than understanding the mechanisms. We can give painkillers, equivalent of painkillers, turn people up or down, but we can't give the equivalent of an antibiotic for a psychiatric disorder. But if we start to understand things like schizophrenia, Tourette syndrome, anxiety, psychosis, at a mechanistic level of perceptual predictions being altered in the specific ways, that opens the way to a proper mechanistic understanding of psychiatric conditions and a new era for psychiatry. The next implication is that we, think we can think about the conscious worlds of other creatures. Uh, it's easy to assume, again, that the, you know, maybe other animals, to the extent they are conscious, have some sort of diminished version of how we humans experience the world, because we like to put ourselves at the center and top of everything. But think about what the experience of being a self might be for an octopus. An octopus has about half a billion neurons. Very, very, very clever, very intelligent creatures. Um, but most of its neurons are in its arms, which are relatively autonomous. So it's unclear that an octopus would need or have any sense of where its body is in space. So what would it be like to be an octopus? You wouldn't have a clear experience of being a specific body. And I think that then feeds back to how we experience ourselves. Yeah, it's just one, one tiny region in a vast space of possible minds. And finally, this whole idea of conscious experience and perception being grounded in physiology and our nature as living organisms, I think means that consciousness probably has more to do with life than it does to do with intelligence. We tend to associate consciousness with intelligence, again, because of this pernicious anthropocentrism that we all have, that we're special and we think we're smart and we're conscious, so the two must go together. Which is why people in artificial intelligence, I think, always talk about when systems get sufficiently intelligent, at some point the lights are going to come on and they'll be conscious. Why do people make that assertion? It's totally unclear to me. Being intelligent allows you to be conscious in different ways. We, because we can do mental time travel, I can experience not only sadness and disappointment, but also regret and anticipatory regrets. You have to be smart to experience these kinds of awful things. But it's just different ways of experiencing things. The raw mechanisms of consciousness have to do with being alive, not with being smart. So this has implications for things like AI. What would it take to build a conscious machine? Maybe you have to build a living machine first, or at least a machine that cares about its own persistence over time. So, about to finish. Have we solved consciousness? What time is it? Have we solved consciousness? Not in the sense that we found any special source that crosses this chasm between the subjective and the objective. There's no kind of magic ingredient that I've given you that solves the hard problem at all. I'm agnostic about whether that will continue to be a problem. But instead, we've crept up on it. Perhaps we need a special source. Perhaps there is still some you know, eureka moment. And we'll look back on it and think, oh, yeah, that's, that's what happened. That's, what, that's the difference that makes a difference. Or perhaps there is no hard problem. Perhaps certain astute philosophers will finally convince us all 
that we're mistaken about there being anything to explain about being conscious. But I prefer to admit that conscious experiences exist, and what we've been doing is a focus on explaining and predicting and controlling uh, the properties of subjective experience in terms of mechanisms in the brain and the body. And that, in general, is what science does. Now, in physics, science has not told us why a universe exists in the first place. We don't really know what's out there. But it's a successful science because we can explain the many phenomena, we can predict what's going to happen, and we can control things. If we can do that with respect to the biological basis of conscious experience, we've done what a scientific research program can reasonably be expected to do. We may not think it's sufficient, but that's again because we might think that we're somehow special. So what I would suggest is that rather than solving the hard problem, this approach is dissolving it. And as we progressively understand why experiences are the way they are and not some other way, this big mystery of the existence of consciousness at all uh, will cease to be so mysterious. And I'll leave you with what then emerges, what David Chalmers has called the meta-problem of consciousness. Why is it that we think there's a hard problem of consciousness? Why does it seem so mysterious? If we can understand the intuitions that lead us to think there's something so inexplicable about the relationship between mechanism and phenomenology, then I think we will be well on the way to dissolving, if not solving, the hard problem. So I'll finish there, and I just want to just, again, flag up the book. It's actually, I just discovered today, it's got a publication date of February the 4th, so I need to get finishing it. Uh, not this February the 4th, uh, next February the 4th. Um, there's a TED Talk, there's other ways you can follow up stuff uh, from me. There's like a three and a half hour interview with Sam Harris if you really uh, want to torture yourself, uh, you can listen to that. And uh, just want to acknowledge the help from lots of people in the lab at Sussex who've done a lot of the work uh, that I've presented. And um, I'll leave it there and thank you for your attention and we have about 20 minutes for questions. <laughs> Yes, uh, so I'm going to just try and, I was asked to just sort of repeat the question to the rest of the audience so that everyone can, so um, gentleman asked about following experiences of surgery, so what, uh, what do we really know about how these changes in the body can then really alter one's sense of self? Um, and there are, there are many different things that happen in the body, especially in the, the gut area. There's the microbiome, which is populated by a distinctive set of, of microorganisms. Uh, and there's interoception, which, which, uh, which relates, this, which I mentioned already, which a lot of signals travel through the vagus nerve. Um, yes, there's a, a lot of groups working on this. Ours at Sussex is one, Hugo Critchley and Sarah Garfinkel, are kind of doing most of the interoceptive work there at the experimental level. 
uh, other groups um, in Zurich are doing a lot of stuff and now in Aarhus in Denmark. Uh, and there's a, such a, a weight of evidence that the body and changes to the body affect our mental states um, much more directly and profoundly than we previously recognized. So in fact, I've written some stuff before about how we can maybe understand things like the condition called depersonalization, which is when things you feel unreal, as a disruption in interoceptive prediction. Uh, and there's other people talking about similar things for anxiety, uh, for depression as well. Um, the challenge in all this stuff is that it's really, really hard to manipulate and measure signals inside the body. This is why most people focus on vision. I can show you, I can have really tight control over what I show you visually and uh, in a way that I just don't have when everything is close, is tied up inside the body. So it's, it's really hard to do, but that doesn't mean there's nothing going on. In fact, there's, a, there's now just the glimmerings of research programs looking at the microbiome. I had a chat with a leader of a microbiome program in Canada last year, and they hadn't really even thought about interoception, which I thought, that's a bit crazy, because you know, that would presumably be a mechanism by which the microbiome could influence the brain. So this, this kind of stuff is, is just starting. And as I'm sure you know, there's, there's, already, there's a lot of evidence for, for vagal nerve stimulation as treatments for things like depression and other, other and, but, but this is all very ad hoc, you know, it works and again the vagal nerve is targeted because it's accessible, it's relatively easy to stimulate the vagus nerve uh, compared to intervening in other ways in the interior of the body. But uh, it is really an emerging frontier, there's even now a sort of field specific term for it, people call it uh, um, computational psychosomatics. <laughs> okay, um, uh, let's see, we'll go um, there, yes. Yep, you. Oh, great. Um, yeah, fascinating talk. Thank you so much. Uh, kind of following on from the last question, I'm just curious if you have studied or are planning to uh, an area, um, it's kind of two separate things, one area and a population. One area being, I read recently a study or a report saying people born blind, well, there isn't a single known case of someone being born blind who then uh, develops schizophrenia. And uh, so much of what you presented uh, was based on vision. Yep. And so I'm curious about if the same model that you're presenting works, or you think would work equally as well with people born blind or, or just using senses like touch and, mm. and that kind of thing. And then the other population I'm quite interested in is long-term meditators and people who strive to and sometimes say they achieve uh, a loss of the sense of reality or a loss of a sense of the body, but they remain equally functional. And yep. I'm just curious if that's come into your research. <clears throat> okay, so the first question was, was about this interesting paper, which, which is, uh, comes out of Phil Corlett's group in Yale, pointing out a fact I wasn't aware of until I read, uh, at least I haven't read the full paper yet, but indeed seems to be the case that people born blind are somehow immunized, insulated from schizophrenia. Um, and let me take that one first. It's, it's, I, actually, I don't know what Phil Corlett says about this. Uh, it is intriguing. And... The thing that comes to my mind about... So people often explain schizophrenia uh, as a combination of two things, hallucinations and delusions, so false perceptions and false beliefs. And the thought is that if you have consistent false perception, then ultimately your brain needs to explain away these false perceptions, and that induces delusions. So I can make sense of false perceptions if I have weird beliefs about the CIA controlling me or something like that. Um, so it could be that the developmental what you call the etiological or pathological trajectory for schizophrenia is 
is almost always going through vision because it's such a dominant sense that we first form false perceptions through vision and then they become kind of transcribed into false beliefs. I'm not, I'm actually, but this doesn't make sense because actually the most prominent symptom in psychosis is auditory hallucinations. Um, so maybe you could tell a different story that in fact blind people have better auditory systems so they're less susceptible to auditory, I don't know, but it's a really fascinating perspective. Um, the second uh, question was about meditators. Super interesting. Again, there's been a lot of neuroscientific crossover between the mindfulness meditation community and the neuroscientific community. I've been to a few neuroscience meditation retreats over the years. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, I mean, besides its, cli its clinical and lifestyle benefits, it's a wonderfully interesting manipulation because long-term meditators do indeed report substantial changes in how they experience, especially themselves. You know, the... the, the, the um, the body, you can have sense of ego dissolution in meditation. A lot of meditative practice is really about training attention. Um, so you're, you're learning to pay attention to recognize your thoughts as being thoughts and your perceptions as being perceptions. And I think this is, so you can imagine now the beginnings of a cognitive neuroscience of meditation here where we really understand that meditation allows this, you to have this little separation so that you realize that what you perceive is not the way things really are. And that applies to the self too. And that's, of course, where the benefit of meditation comes from, that you don't get caught up in the ruminative cycle of thoughts and perceptions. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, and there's brain imaging stuff. There's, you know, uh, monks like Mathieu Ricard, who's, who's been, he's a Dalai Lama's French translator. He's, he's put himself as a guinea pig. So he's done, I don't know, tens of thousands of hours of meditation in the Himalaya. And he'll get in a brain scanner and sort of manip manip manipulate his level of mindful, mindfulness, and we see what goes on in, in the brain. Um, that's kind of, yeah, it's, it's going on. But it's sort of the opposite of hypnosis, by the way. That's another way to think of meditation. So in hypnosis, you're getting a suggestion to experience something, and you, you're not aware that you're, you're following that suggestion. So it's like a disattention to your own perceptions and thoughts, whereas meditation is the opposite. And indeed, if you look across populations, you'll find that trait mindfulness anti-correlates with trait hypnotizability. So people who are, you know, yeah, score higher on meditative scales, score lower on hypnotizability scales. Uh, so I was just wondering uh, how I relate to Michael Graziano's attention, attention schema theory that awareness is how we represent attention for ourselves and also how we tend to see consciousness in ourselves and others just like how we say, see faces in uh, clouds. Okay, so this was a question about another researcher called Michael Graziano, who has a theory of consciousness called the attention schema theory, um, which I, I'm not going to answer at length because it would require explaining what that theory is at length, which I, I don't want to do here. But basically, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't like it very much. Um, and the reason, so the, the basic idea is that consciousness somehow happens because of we, we build a model of how our attention works. It's a model of what we pay attention to um, in some form or another. Uh, it's probably got something to do with, with, it can explain a lot about the relationship between attention and conscious perception, but I think it still does this little confidence trick and says, and that's where the magic is. Um, and I, I, I don't like that. I prefer to think more in terms of, um, as, as I've been hopefully doing, what explains the specific phenomenological character of different kinds of conscious experiences. Attention has a role in all of these, but I don't think it's the magic bullet that, that makes things, makes the difference. We're talking about the implications for psychiatry. I'm particularly interested in anxiety and depression, whether mm. you could 
say something about that? Um, yeah, well, there's, there's, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't have a medical training, but my co-director at the center is, uh, is the chair of psychiatry there. So this was really the motivation, the practical motivation for getting into this, to, to find better approaches within psychiatry. Psychosis we talked about, when it comes to anxiety and depression, there are some very interesting ideas that, again, relate these phenomena to interoception, um, to aberrant ways in which we perceive and control uh, the body. So there's a, a theory, an idea about depression which, which needs testing, it needs figuring out how to test it, but the idea is that um, when we start to develop depressive symptoms, when the brain reaches a sort of inference that it's not controlling its body very well, that it's a sort of failure of what we call physiological allostatic regulation, that there's, um, there's this sort of conclusion the brain reaches that whatever it does, its, it's physiological regulation is going poorly. And uh, this is why you, often, you sometimes see a trajectory from sort of chronic fatigue into depression. You can sort of explain that trajectory in the same way. That's just, that's just one idea. There, there are lots of others, but they all seem to implicate physiological dysregulation. <laughs> As, as well as CDs also, and meditation. Say again? As well as CDs. CDs? CDs, what they help you to go through that. Okay, yes. I mean, so, but, but yeah, I mean, meditation is, is very helpful. Not, again, it's not a cure-all, but by training your attention to interoceptive processes, you can start to uh, you know, disassociate yourself from the immediate experience of depressive symptoms to some extent. And anxiety, people have thought about anxiety as a discrepancy between what your body tells you and what, where you want it to be too. So this idea of, of anxiety being a kind of interoceptive uh, prediction error. Um, we know there are lots of connections between the body and anxiety that you know, if you present certain stimuli at different phases of the cardiac cycle, you get different uh, effects on, on um, like how fearful you feel given a, a fear-inducing stimulus. And this is, this is mediated by anxiety as well. So there are all sorts of clues that these interoceptive processes are, are heavily implicated, but there's no kind of out-of-the-box approach that takes advantage. It's still, it's still difficult to work out for the reasons that were mentioned earlier. It's very hard to go in and manipulate and measure at this level. Um, thank you. Fascinating. Um, my question is about the implications for psychotherapy generally, especially with psychotherapy focusing so much on the self and the so-called um, improvement of the self and training of the self. Um, really, I'm interested in whether or not all your uh, research questions can reframe the kind of questions asked of clients and patients generally that um, so much of psychotherapy is based on hypothetical theories from the past but not necessarily based on body-based physiological um, discrepancies, maybe. Yeah. So the question was about whether these sorts of ideas can inform and perhaps improve psychotherapy. And I th well, I would hope so. I'm not a psychotherapist, so that, that's. But certainly, by offering some potential more mechanistic descriptions of these processes, they can perhaps fill in some of the the sort of otherwise relatively vague associations and suggestions that, that crop up in psychotherapy. Of course, it works as a practice, and cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that. Yeah, it works. Um, but but to, 
sort of drill down and understand a bit more about why these things work and why they might w work differently for different people as well. I think that's one of the, the key things that, that I think everybody involved in psychotherapy or psychiatric medicine knows that people are different and you can't have a single treatment for everybody. And if we start to understand the, you know, the real mechanistic basis of, of why people feel the way they feel, then that might help uh, personalise these sorts of uh, treatments as well. Perhaps, you know, you might, even very, very coarse level, you might find that things, some things work for people who are highly hypnotizable. Uh, other things work for people who are highly practiced meditators. It might be, uh, might go like that. But yes, I, I do think there's a lot, of, a lot of promise. What I am always scared of is just this sort of overly quick reach to science and like, you know, just say, it's been shown by science that this worked or that, or that this thing is this sort of overconfidence and trying to use a bit of, sometimes a bit of false authority to say like, science says this, so believe it, here's a picture of a brain. And um, yeah, I don't like that picture of brain stuff. Okay. Um, uh, woman in the red jumper and what time have we got? Yeah, time for a couple more. Quick question. Um, the experiments about the level of consciousness and wh what level you, of complexity you see in different activities and so forth, did you ever get the chance to test where people are when they're singing or when they're dancing or when they're doing something like that? Because just linked to the interoception question, I wonder, it would be fascinating to know whether those sorts of things where you integrate the body actually lead to a higher level of consciousness or not. And it would link, obviously, to the comments that have just been made about psychotherapy and so yeah. forth. Yeah. Yeah, so a question about singing, dancing, whether, whether they sort of affect these measures of conscious level, which I think I didn't really want to describe as a higher level of consciousness, but as a measure that reflects this, this, this scale. Um, dancing, definitely not. I mean, if you can get someone to dance while standing perfectly still so the head doesn't move, so we can imitate that, then, then fine, but that's usually not, not, not very feasible. Um, so part of the problem is, is the experimental constraints of, of acquiring the data. I think it would be, would be very interesting to do, but typically one cannot do brain imaging in these very highly mobile situations. You, you just don't get, you don't get clean data. I think it would be nice to see. There are people that, you know, you can get mobile EEG headsets and so on, but as soon as people start moving their muscles, the signal for any muscle just overwhelms the stuff you get from the brain, and it's really, it's really complicated. All right, um, so my question is, uh, well, one relatively recent development in, in consciousness studies specifically is the Templeton Research Prize Grant that's comparing information integration theory with uh, um, global uh, workspace theory. Uh -huh. Now, it seems to me that you're, you know, you're drawing some ideas from integration information theory, but it's not specifically, you're not a big proponent of that. Uh, if I'm getting that correctly. But more broadly, uh, I, w I just wanted to get your thoughts on the uh, Templeton research grant okay. thing. And uh, yeah, what <laughs> do you think the outcomes would be? Okay, I'll try and answer this very quickly. So this is a question about a new initiative from this group called the Templeton Foundation. And what they're doing is they're throwing tens of millions of dollars at research groups. And the aim, the idea is we've got too many theories of consciousness. We need to like narrow the field. So let's have different groups talk to each other and come up with an experiment which will, to some extent, disambiguate competing theories. So I've been involved, like, advising on this initiative for a while now. Um, and the, I think it's good. The problem I have with it, I think the problem it will encounter is that all the theories, there are a lot of theories out there, and they're all theories of different things. They all say they're theories of consciousness, but they're all, they all define consciousness slightly differently, and they make different initial assumptions, and they're not equal in their amenability to experimental test. So um, you, you know, to put it very bluntly, it's, you'll get... It's apples and oranges. It's, it's very hard to, 
to, um, to, it's not going to do what they want it to do, but it will be useful because even getting people who, who have allegiance to different sorts of theories, even to get them to agree that a particular experiment will be informative for their theory, that it will count a little bit against them or for them, is a very useful exercise. I'm going to another workshop to, comp to compare predictive processing against integrated information theory. My problem is predictive processing is not a theory of consciousness. It's a theory of how the brain works that is useful for consciousness. So you can't like, disambiguate it from a theory that is claiming to find a special source somewhere. Um, so I think it's, it's sort of flawed but useful. So all these things are going to fail, but they're going to fail interestingly. And that is fine. That's what we all do, right? Thank you. Um, regarding what you said about uh, the brain as a prediction machine, it reminds me of uh, the multiple drafts model uh, postulated or at least written about by Daniel Dennett uh, in which he says that uh, the various parallel processes in the brain which represent uh, various perceptions and uh, when they reach a, th a certain threshold then um, it becomes a conscious experience, whatever that means. And I was wondering if uh, there is any evidence or neurological evidence of such internal feedback loops in the brain that, that reinforce those processes. Yeah, so this is reference to philosopher Daniel Dennett, who's one of my kind of long-term inspirations and mentors. Um, he had a theory from the early... He wrote a book in 1990 called Consciousness Explained, which is the best title in the world because, of course, it isn't. And people <laughs> call it Consciousness Explained Away. And um, part of that is this idea of multiple drafts. Multiple drafts is really a theory of the self, that, that we have all these sort of partial narratives going on, no, no single centre where it all comes together, where the self resides. Uh, and I, you know, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. Where I think the theory struggles is it's not really a theory of perceptual experience. And it's very difficult to pin Daniel Dennett down about whether he thinks perceptual experience is something that we need to explain. He will say, yes, you know, perceptual experience exists, but they're not what you think they are, which I think is great. Uh, and, but in terms of the evidence, it's really... It, it, Evidence that Dennett would like overlaps very considerably with evidence for what we've also called global workspace theory. So no single place, but a network of regions where when something has access to that network, that's the moment that consciousness happens. I haven't talked about that, this, this theory today, but it's a very popular theory because, again, it's quite testable. You can see, do you see this big network of activity when you're conscious of something? And you do in some, in some cases. Uh, but... So there is some evidence that, that's, that comports nicely with the multiple draft theory, but I think the theory itself doesn't, for me anyway, do what I would like a, a theory of consciousness to do. But having said that, Daniel Dennett is always right. So, <laughs> okay, thank you very much, everybody, for your patience and attention. This episode is sponsored by our upcoming Day on Consciousness online conference taking place on January 30th, 2022. In this series of talks, we'll be exploring the fascinating mysteries of human consciousness with a specific focus on theories that go beyond the materialist paradigm. We'll have lectures from three internationally best-selling authors, including Dr. E. McGilchrist, who will present on consciousness, purpose and values, Rupert Spira, who will give a talk on non-duality and the nature of consciousness, and Annie Murphy-Paul, whose title will be The Extended Mind. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in the Q&A sessions, 
connect with like-minded participants during the conference, and get lifetime access to the recordings and all available materials from the sessions. The event is CPD accredited and a certificate qualifies you for five hours of CPD. Additionally, all tickets come with a 100% satisfaction guarantee, meaning if you're not satisfied with your learning experience, you'll get a full refund with no questions asked. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash consciousness 2022 and use the discount code POD when registering. That's all one word, POD. You can also find the link and the discount code in the show notes for this episode.